Welcome to One True Podcast. My name is Mark Chirino, and my producer is Michael Von Cannon. In his memoir, A Movable Feast, Ernest Hemingway wrote, All you have to do is write one true sentence, write the truest sentence that you know. So finally, I would write one true sentence and then go on from there. In that same spirit of honesty, creativity, and curiosity, One True Podcast explores all things related to Ernest Hemingway, his life, his work, and his world. Today's show takes Hemingway at his own premise. We ask our guest a very simple question, her choice for Hemingway's one true sentence and why, and then as Hemingway writes, go on from there. Michael and I were pretty sure our Hemingway geek friends would be happy to join us on these episodes, but we've been so pleased that so many civilians, including many writers we admire, have been such good sports who share our sense of quirky fun. And for today's show, we have the pleasure of welcoming Elizabeth Strout so we can listen to one Pulitzer Prize winner talk about another. Elizabeth Strout, born and raised in New England, is the author of, among other works, Olive Kitteridge, Olive Again, My Name is Lucy Barton, Amy and Isabel, and Anything is Possible. Her many awards and achievements include Publishers Weekly's Best Books for 2017, and for Olive Kitteridge, the Pulitzer Prize for Fiction in 2009. We are very pleased to welcome Elizabeth Stroud. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's a real pleasure. Oh, it's a pleasure for us. So in keeping with the conceit of this episode, what is your one true sentence and why? The sentence is this. He would lie in the bed, and finally, with daylight, he would go to sleep. When I was looking through many of his true sentences, that one just sort of hit me. And I think because with this pandemic, this has happened to me a couple of times, and um, it doesn't much matter because it's not like I have to, (laughs) you know, particularly do anything in the morning, but I have all of a sudden an understanding of this sentence as being true. He would lie in the bed and finally with daylight, he would go to sleep. And I realized that's pretty great. It's very simple, typically simple for Hemingway, straight to the point, And there we are. And I thought, boom. When you say the word true, or when Hemingway says the word true, and Elizabeth, this is a word that comes up a lot in your interviews, talking about truth in right. writing, in writing and in reading. Uh what strikes you about true and what's a synonym for true in this context? I think, um, you know, it's, it's taken me forever <clears throat> to think about, I mean, to understand what a true sentence is because I've been, you know, I was very much guided by those words of Hemingway as a very young person. And um, I think that ultimately you know it when you hear it, but you have to study it for a long, long time. So to break it down, is, is difficult, but I think it needs to be true factually. It needs to be true emotionally. It needs to be um, not one extra word to it. It just needs to be the truth of that sentence. So when you say true factually, it could be uh, realistic or authentic, uh, true, not necessarily true to fact, Right, but, not true to fact, but in within the story's shape or the book shape, it has to be true to what's actually happening. You know, somebody can't walk into the kitchen and then walk through the window. 
I mean, unless it's fantasy, you know what I'm saying? So sure. it has to be true on that very basic level. And then it has to be emotionally true. In hearing you read the sentence, one thing, a couple things stood out. Uh, maybe we can uh, we can focus on it. So at the beginning of the sentence, it says he would lie in the bed. Yeah. And it just strikes me that every other writer I know would have, would have written he would lie in bed. But this How is does, exactly it. Yeah. So what does that add to the sentence? Right. It's so interesting because I, I, I was thinking about that as I was choosing that sentence. It's very, very interesting. The word the. Um, it makes it, it, it separates the bed from the man. So if you had, he would lie in bed, it's the man and the bed become all of one thing, but this is, he would lie in the bed and that keeps him separate because he is separate. That's my interpretation of why he put in the bed. That's excellent. You're thinking about the bed as an object. Yeah, exactly. And And I noticed that right away. And so, you know, good for you. I mean, <laughs> I'm sorry. I don't mean good, good for both of us. No, but, right, exactly. But it's we did so it. interesting because uh, that was one, it was literally one of the first things that I wanted to mention. So, yeah. And so, he, and finally, with daylight, and there's that other uh, obvious, uh, prominent feature of this sentence is that phrase, which is marked off by commas with daylight. So it's kind of has a an, a, an accumulative power to yep. the, to the sentence. Yeah. And so even. Hemingway-esque simplicity, which sometimes doesn't have a lot of commas and or punctuation, right, exactly fitting rhythmically in this in this yep. circumstance. Would you right. say yes? Because the finally sets and then with the comma. I mean, the, the that the finally comma with daylight comma gives a sense of time passing. Just those three words and the commas, they give the sense of that nighttime experience finally going away. Right. Well, is this something that comes to you naturally, these one true sentences? Is these are these things that happen all the time that you and you were saying like you know it when you see it. What's the how does this apply to your own work? Yeah, I you know I think um I think that I have as I said, I've been writing, I mean, well, I didn't say that, but I've been writing from a very, very young age, like the age of four, basically. So I've been thinking about this for years and years and years. And I do think at this point, I can get a true sentence down faster than I used to be able to. But again, it's like trying to, you know, I have an image of my hand in a box, and there are shapes in that box that I have to make sure are are right but I can't look into the box and see them. I just have to feel them with my hand. That's the analogy that I think of myself as a worker. And so when the shape falls perfectly, then I realize, okay, that's a true sentence. And, um, you know, going back and rewriting, I'll, I'll understand, okay, that's not, let's go. When you consider your own work and maybe when you're doing a reading or something, will you be, We'll say like, wow, I, 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 there's about 15 sentences in there that are just that I can think about as being just extraordinary sentences, or maybe just one where you say that's one of the best sentences I've ever written, and th- and you can think about your own work in the same with the same sort of uh, barometer. Oh, that's so interesting because I almost feel I have so much trouble judging my own work. Like when I'm working on it, I know okay, this actually is right. This feels right. I'm doing it right. Finally, now I've got it right. 
Um, but then when it's published and I go back and look at it later, it doesn't even almost feel that connected to me in a certain kind of way. I mean, I know that all by memory <laughs> because I've done it so many times with every sentence, but, but when I actually, when it's published and I, and I read it or write it, it's funny. I have, I'll have trouble judging it. I see. Uh, one of the things about a clean, well-lighted place, such a famous story, but it's so short. It's so short. Fabulous. So tell me about like, as a, from, from your perspective to create this kind of universe that Hemingway does in maybe three pages, right? What's the challenge and what's that project like? Well, it's really, it's remarkable because first of all, he doesn't attribute most of the speech. And um, that's an interesting almost dilemma in a way, except it's not because it all works. But, you know, I was, as I was reading this story, I, I all of a sudden saw something that I hadn't, <coughs> excuse me, noticed before, which is that the narrator is really an interesting narrator because um, you might think at first blush that this story was more or less from the older waiter's point of view. But in fact, the narrator is further away. He's, he's up there because at the start of the story, the old man liked to sit late. This is not the waiter. This is the old man in the cafe. The old man liked to sit late because he was deaf and now night, <clears throat> now at night it was quiet and he felt the difference. So we're inside this man's head. He's given us, Hemingway has given us permission to understand that this man feels the difference even though he's deaf between the noisy cafe and the quiet cafe. And I thought that was really fascinating because it does open us up to allow us, even just that one brief moment, we're allowed to be that deaf man. Yes. With that yes. one word felt, and he felt the difference. That's so that right. was really, really interesting to me. And um, and then, you know, with the older waiter, just the conversations, it's just it's just so beautifully done because one is young and one is older. And I think therein lies much of the difference. This episode of One True Podcast is supported by the Hemingway Review, the scholarly journal of the Ernest Hemingway Foundation and Society. Michael and I read it cover to cover every time we see it. You can buy back issues of the Hemingway Review at HemingwaySociety.org slash journals. Elizabeth, in a lot of your writing, you write about these same themes about loneliness and old age. And it it's sometimes hard to remember that when Hemingway wrote A Clean, Well-Lighted Place, he was in his early 30s. Right. Writing this contemplation about despair and old age. Right. Does that surprise you or do you have a, is there a connection that you see in your work about these themes and what Hemingway does here? You know, it didn't surprise me to realize that he was that young. I mean, I think that somebody like Hemingway, he'd probably had a sleepless night at that point in his life. And he was married to Pauline Pfeiffer at the time that this story was written. And we don't know how that was going at this time. So I think that his imaginative abilities are already there to make the the swath across all these different age levels. And there's one other thing that I wanted to mention about the story that I thought was interesting. Um, the, the older waiter says, I'm one of those who like to stay late at the cafe. The older waiter said, the younger waiter says, 
with all those who do not want to go to bed, with all those who need a light for the night. And I remembered, I think it was in the biography of Martha Gellhorn that I read that she made fun of Hemingway for needing to sleep with a light on. And I thought that's so interesting because even at this young age, he either understood that he would like a night light on or whatever. And I don't mean to, you know, commingle him with the story, but I think no. that these are details that come from a place of real truth. Yes. And, you know, in Hemingway's fiction, the being afraid of the dark is yeah. sort of, is sort of the equivalent to being, you know, PTSD yeah. or the You're shell exactly shock from, right. from war. So that's, that's right. a wonderful point. There's a, a great quote from my name is Lucy Barton that I wanted to, I don't know if you get appalled when people quote things of your work at you, uh, but no. if you if you don't, if you don't mind, I'll do one sentence here. Yeah. So <clears throat> lonely was the first flavor I had tasted in my life. And it was always there hidden inside the crevices of my mouth, reminding me Right. that that is a beautiful sentence. Right. And I am, and lonely loneliness becomes a, tangible palpable thing as it is as it is in this story right right that's interesting uh, in many of your interviews you talked about your upbringing and how you grew up in a a, not in a clustered urban environment but rather uh, you were by yourself a lot to read and and write and so what is how is the theme of loneliness woven through your through your work you know i'm i don't think that it was um it was not a conscious thing my, you know, all I do when I work, when I write is I try and write about the person that I'm writing about as carefully and as truthfully as I can. I try so hard to get inside that character because I've always been character driven. Um, I'm not driven thematically is what I'm saying. You know, I don't have an idea. I have always, it comes to me in the form of a person and that person I need to inhabit as fully as I can using whatever parts of myself that I can attach to this character, because we really don't ever really know what it feels like to be another person when you think about it, which is kind of horrifying. Um, and years, years ago, I realized when I picked up a book of fiction and I remember thinking, Oh, I've had that thought. And that was when I understood, Oh, that's one way that we can actually understand what it's like to be another person. And I think I was hooked from that moment on to just try and always figure out what does it feel like to be another person. So when I'm writing, I'm just trying to get that person down as honestly as I can. And then I realized later that there are themes of course (laughs) to my work and that loneliness is one of them. The theme emerges organically. Right. Yeah. And the, I'm thinking about Hemingway saying in his Nobel prize speech, you know, writing is a lonely life, right? So part of being a writer is all those hours by yourself. Yeah. Except when the work is going well, there's nothing like it, you know? (laughs) So you wait for those moments when you feel like it's actually going well. And, um, right. And I do think that the solitude of my childhood was exactly what I needed to become a writer because I was used to it. Yeah. We mentioned that this is such a short story and so much of it is in dialogue. And so much of the dialogue is un, uh, unattributed or we don't know how certain lines are said, what verb is and what right. the adverb is. What's your, uh, 
what are your rules for attributing dialogue or, or conveying yeah. how people say things? Well, I, I usually do attribute dialogue because I, I don't, for myself, I don't want any confusion on the reader's part. And so for me, it's a, it's a way of uh, clarity. And, and I also think the word said just sort of dissolves in the eye of the reader anyway. Yes. Yep. So if you said, he said, you know, she said, it's not going to matter except rhythmically, which I try and pay attention very much to the rhythm. Um, but I think that in this story, I mean, it's very Hemingway. He doesn't, he does not attribute speech and he doesn't need to in this story. Um, I think it's, it just works so beautifully with just the lines of dialogue hang, almost hanging in the air of this darkening cafe as, you know, as you realize the lights are going to go out and the, the blinds are going to go up and, you know, whatever. I guess the other aspect of this is that you're, uh, the sentence that you point out is the third to last sentence in the story. So another thing I wanted to uh, ask you about is uh, the sense of an ending, how stories are ended yeah. and the challenge about taking this, this kind of sentence, uh, this kind of story, which has already been contemplating. We've been contemplating suicide and so forth. And it says, uh, after all, he said to himself, it's pro it is probably only insomnia. Many must have it, you know, and I, a kind of an ironic ending. But um, what are endings endings like for you are all, do you find that process similar with every project or does it depend on the book? It depends on what I'm writing. Um, and it's funny because I never write anything from beginning to end, even a story. I just don't write it from beginning to end. And I very often found, this was true for the last story in all of Kittredge. I had written the that scene way before I even knew that story was going to exist. And it was so interesting to me. And I put it aside and I wrote end question mark on top. And then really, you know, months later I realized, okay, here's a story. And then all of a sudden I thought, wait a minute, I have the end. I have the end for this yeah. story and the end for the book. So that was weird and interesting. So that sometimes happens. Um, that wasn't the only time that's happened, but otherwise I don't know how it will end until I get there. And then it's again, it's like, oh, okay, now I know. This will be it. But as you're writing it, you have the faith that the trust that you're yeah. going to be able to find an ending. I do. I mean, yeah. at this point I do. Um, and if I don't, then it won't get done. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. the, when one other point about a clean, well-lighted place that I'd love for you to react about. For me, a clean, well-lighted place strikes me as one of the most icebergy stories right. that Hemingway's ever written, where um, maybe people who aren't that invested in it could read and be like, what's, right. go you know, what's going on? So with Hemingway's notion of the iceberg principle in mind, what is your negotiation between what you tell your readers and what you withhold what you suggest i've come to think of it in these terms for myself as a writer which is that i want to leave space between the sentences for the reader to enter with their own story and that to me is important because everybody will bring their own story to the text and it will become almost a different story for everybody who reads it that's 
what I am trying to do. And therefore, the denser the prose is, or the more details I give that I don't need to give, it's almost, I feel like it blocks the reader from being able to enter it. Do you see? That's fascinating. So, yeah. Was this, was this something, was this uh, balance something that you came upon as your career yeah. developed? I, yeah, I began to understand that. Because like Amy and Isabel is a little bit more densely written. And it wasn't until I was, you know, writing more and more and more. And then with my name is Lucy Barton, I realized, right, let's leave space so that the reader can enter the story. And I had understood on some level that that was always my goal, but then I became conscious of it and I was able to put it into words as I am now. And so do you appreciate writers and artists and musicians, et cetera, who offer that same kind of space for you when you are when you're reading too? Yes. I, I mean, I, I, I do. And yet I don't mind, um, you know, a densely written book as long as it's, you know, truthful and going along. Um, but it's just my, that's what I think of as my approach to the work is to leave the space for the reader to enter because I'm always thinking about the reader. It's like we're in a dance together. Would you mind reading your sentence one more time for us, Elizabeth? He would lie in the bed, and finally, with daylight, he would go to sleep. Elizabeth Strout, thank you so much for joining us on One True Podcast. This has been great. Thank you. And thanks to you all for listening in. This episode is available on HemingwaySociety.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Twitter at OneTruePod. That's the number, one true pod. Or email us at onetruepod at gmail.com. Our show is supported by the Hemingway Society, the English Department of the University of Evansville, and Florida Gulf Coast University. Join us next time as we continue exploring Hemingway, his work, and his world. Until then, I'm Mark Chirino with Michael Von Cannon, and this is One True Podcast. 